I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters and to our special series on the National Strategy for Alzheimer's Disease Data and Research. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rhoda O, Digital Technology Leader at Boston University's Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology at Boston University. She is also Co-Principal Investigator and Director of Neuropsychology at the Framingham Heart Study, a research project launched in 1948 to study heart disease and stroke. Dr. O is known for spearheading the digital age of cognitive change research and gave a presentation at the spring ADRC meeting on digital biomarkers and cognitive testing in the ADRCs. Dr. O joined me live at the conference to discuss her work and the developments being made to push the field of Alzheimer's disease research into the digital age. Welcome to Dementia Matters, Dr. Rhoda O. Welcome to Dementia Matters, Dr. Rhoda O. So this year's meeting, you presented on digital biomarkers. This is what you said was your eighth presentation on the topic. And I didn't realize you had an MBA and it takes at least seven iterations before something can stick. I think that's how you said it. And you're very excited this year and I am too. And so I was hoping you could start by, just for our audience, it's new to this, what is a digital biomarker? So you would think that that would be an easy question, but it's actually not. So right now, the term digital biomarker is often referring to collecting clinical measures digitally. But I actually think that we need to be more thoughtful in our consideration of what do we mean by a digital biomarker. And I do think that we need to start thinking about categories of digital biomarkers. And the reason I think that is because you have to have some near-term pragmatic, what we would call digital biomarkers, because we've got clinical studies, clinical trials, etc. But, and I, I think that that's the majority of when you use digital health technology to collect some sort of digital bet- metric. I think right now that is, that describes what most people would call a digital biomarker. In my mind, that's actually more digital phenotyping, right? Which is that you certainly are characterizing the information, the behavior digitally. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a digital biomarker. I do think that the digital biomarker concept, just like a traditional biomarker, is going to need some validation work. And I still think that we have, we're steps away from really having a robust class of digital biomarkers. And then I think that there's even another class of digital biomarkers, and that's the one that I think is still in the future. And that's uh, something that I see as being much more free-flowing, dynamic, and not doesn't fit our traditional concept of a digital biomarker. What you said, though, about most of us thinking of digital biomarkers as digital testing, taking traditional cognitive tests that we do in the clinic or in research and, and 
digitalizing them. And what does that look like, though, for those of our, our listeners who are research participants or patients who have gone through traditional testing? What, which of these things can actually be put into a digital format? So I would say that almost any test that's being given could actually put, be put in a digital format. So for instance, if we think about traditional cognitive testing, right, there's two forms of responses. So one is that you ask a question and they respond verbally. You know, how would you convert that into digital? You would digitally voice record it, right? That's an audio recording. And that's just a digital recorder. The other way in which we collect responses is written responses. And that you can do with a digital pen, with a you know, stylus on a tablet. And then, of course, there's computer-based versions of picking that up as well. So those would all be means in which you could take anything that you're already doing as a paper and pencil test and collecting that data. It just means capturing it digitally rather than just in a, you know, the traditional way we do now. Now, some people have test anxiety, and I know that's something as a neuropsychologist we always have to consider the context of the person taking the test, mm -hmm. not doing well on a test, but maybe that doesn't reflect how they're actually performing in real life. And so I've heard people say gamifying, like doing some novel or new type of cognitive assessment that's done with a computer or an iPad or some sort of tablet device that's not traditional, it's not something you'd normally see, but it's still sort of measuring some of the different parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as equally as useful or maybe entering, starting to get into the more creative world of digital testing? Yeah, I think that the gamification, I think right now that's what we think about in terms of making cognitive assessments a little bit more creative, is make them quote unquote more fun with these different um, tests. And it is true because everything we do, we do through our brain. When we're doing these different games and et cetera, we definitely are reflecting our cognitive capabilities. You know, it's all about how are we capturing that data and then how are we analyzing, interpreting that. But I would say that we could go one step further. I would say that we can even remove sort of the game version of that and then just start to think about how do we collect people's uh, behaviors in their natural environment as they're interacting with it, right? There's lots of different sensor-based technologies that are available today. And if we do that, we take away maybe the artificial aspects of thinking about cognitive assessment and more think about how do we capture in a more natural, ongoing way. And that's where you're going to get away from this concept of text anxiety, because you're no longer testing people. And I, I like to always remind people, you know, when we do clinical intakes of people for the first time and we ask them, when did you first notice your memory impairment? They don't give you a list of scores test scores, right? What they do is they give you, oh, well, this is what I did, and I forgot this, and I remember this, and I, you know, I forgot to pay that bill, I got lost, you know, and the family member, yeah, you know, they keep repeating that same story over and over again, and then the other family member, well, you remember that time? So it, what's interesting here, though, and I think the point is, is that there's no one question there's no one answer that says that person has a memory impairment. But if you put the whole compilation of different kinds of behaviors that they've been engaging in and emitting, I think that there's consensus, there's a memory impairment. That's what we have to get to. And that's what I think digital can do. And I think when we start to do that, we're starting to get at accurate cognitive assessments. What has taken us so long in the field of cognitive evaluations to go from the standard paper-pencil testing to this, to this type of evaluation of just 
people's normal, regular behaviors? Well, I think that because we like to engage in the scientific process, I think that it's we have these standardized methods, and in order, and there's multiple steps that we need to take to get to this what I would call more free-flowing way of collecting data. The other thing is that digital is really new. Like even the concept of digital biomarkers. You know, when I when I went to PubMed, right, and I just put in the words digital biomarker, you know, together. If you look at the publication, the very first one that really comes up is 2014. So this is how new the field is, and I think there was like one publication. So if you if you actually look at the number of publications since 2014 now, till now, the majority have been in the last few years. So I think we need to appreciate that this is a whole new frontier, right? And it's always very hard to go from where you are to where you should be, particularly when where you should be is still so well defined. One of the things that people always think is, oh, it's so great to be innovative, cutting edge, forward thinking, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out that it's actually not. I tell people it's terrible to be first, and it's actually better to be 10th because then there's at least some sort of pathway that's been carved. And it's really hard remembering that we work within a precedent-based system, right? It's peer review. So we do peer review grants, we do peer review papers. So what happens if you're trying to get to this vision of where to go, but there's no precedent? There's no peers. So how do you even start? Because you can't get grants funded for it. And certainly once you produce a manuscript, you can't get it published, at least not very easily. I would say that a lot of our participants, a lot of our patients, when they think of digital, the first thing they'll ask me is, well, can I go online and do a brain game? Mm -hmm. And so often now when we talk about brain health and keeping people's brains active, it kind of shifts to that as far as a treatment modality now. Mm -hmm. But this this is different than, of course, in what you're talking about, this free-flowing, this idea of just measuring people's abilities in their everyday life. But when it comes to people trying to improve brain activity. I mean, what do you think of digital online brain games? I think that anything that keeps your brain active is a good thing. So if it happens to be a brain game that you really enjoy and keeps you engaged and moving forward and gets those competitive juices up because you're trying to do better, that's not a bad thing. It's no different than you going and doing crossword puzzles or you reading a book or staying on top. You know, anything that moves those executive functions around, I don't think it's ever bad. So I don't care what you call it, whether it's in the form of a brain game or if it's the form of going and playing bridge with your, you know, your friends or whatever. There's there's something to be said about the concept of use it or lose it, so you might as well continue using it however you can find the way to do so. You know, a question that came up at the spring meeting, which is one I've heard asked of you before, is this idea of safety and privacy. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the world of technology and, and frankly, recent sort of digital attacks, what are you, are you worried about this or what, are there things in place that have already protected people? I think that if you do not figure out a way to do this without protecting people's confidentiality and privacy, you're going to be dead in the water. So, so this is something that I worry about all the time. And I think that certainly anybody in the digital realm, as far as you know, 
being HIPAA compliant, making sure that they're doing encryption so that if anybody intercepts midway, they're not actually getting any personal identifying information. I think those are all pretty standard practice. I do think we have to be honest, though, too. As we know in the digital world, there is no such thing as a 100% guarantee, but I do think that there are many different uh, steps right now that are taken to mitigate the risk. Having said that, I think where we really need to go if we really want to fully protect is we want to get to the point where we have more self-contained evaluations that are doing feedback internally so that it's really restricted to the participant or the, you know, or the person and, and to whomever they want to share that information with, but we're not there yet. In order to get to that truly private world, we have to go through this period of discovery, which we, you know, we are trying you know, to make sure that we always put sort of security privacy top of mind. But I do think we also have to be very clear, and we've seen this in breaches of data, no data is 100% secure. But I do think that we're as secure as you can possibly be. You know, it's, I think at least at this point, but that doesn't mean that we can't get better. When you mentioned how things have really exploded from 2014 to now, and there's, there's certainly this is a topic that's discussed more often. And I, and I guess I just wonder, how do people account for the acceleration in the technology, in the creativity of how people are looking at this? How does that, how do you future-proof, I believe you said, how do you future-proof for these newer things that we haven't thought of yet? Yeah, so I think, I think that right now, no matter what is best of class, it's going to be obsolete in about a year or two. Version one of nothing has stood the test of time. So knowing that, what you have to think about strategically is as you're collecting the data and understanding that whatever derived measures you're getting, whatever algorithms you're using, I don't actually really care because it doesn't matter because it's going to be obsolete still. So, so, but you know that up front, and that, that part is definitive. So therefore it becomes how do you collect that data in a way so that when these future opportunities come along, you can actually bring all your measures up to contemporary standards. So for me, I always look for technologies that not just give me the more immediate kind of measure of interest. I'm interested in do you give me the raw digital data stream from which that that's based on? Because if I have that, then as these new algorithms appear, I can go back and reanalyze that data again, right? And I always compare this like to blood. When you store blood, you know, we didn't know when we collected blood way back in the 80s or whatever that genetics would be and multi-omics would be such a big thing or AD biomarkers, which didn't really exist then. But because we had the stored blood and we had stored it in its whole, you know, whole blood form, plasma, serum, we've stored it in a state that allowed us now to apply these new advances, right? And so I think of digital in the same way as that. It's just that it's a non-diluting resource. So it's something that you can keep reusing and reusing and reusing. So you can be a lot more liberal with how you try out different ways of looking at digital because you never lose it. Well, and so at this conference, you presented the digital UDS pilot, which I think we're all very excited about. And everyone in the audience had a lot of great questions. and They all seemed very enthusiastic. Could you share with our listeners what this pilot is and, and what you're looking forward to? 
Sure. So I think what we're trying to do is figure out how do we get the digital era started, essentially. But we have to do it thoughtfully because we have to be mindful of the fact that there is already a tradition within the UDS, right? We have clinical measures that have been long collected and we have cognitive tests that have been long collected. And so we want to make sure that we also protect sort of the longitudinal integrity of that data as well. And then on top of that, bring in some digital. So what we've tried to do is we try to find things that would complement or amplify what's being collected on the clinical measure side, what's going to be collected on the cognitive side in order so that we can sort of enhance and, and move things forward, again, in a, in a more strategic way, because we can't put every bell and whistle in there. And we don't even want to put every bell and whistle in there, because some of those bells and whistles aren't going to like stand the test of time. So we want to make sure that we uh, strategically select different kinds of digital measures that are, uh, I would say, supplementary, complementary to what's already been in place. So the, you know, the whole still moves, I think, the enterprise, the longitudinal, it protects sort of the longitudinal component, but then also sets the stage for sort of the future opportunities. Well, Dr. Rhoda Oh, thank you so much for being on this podcast and highlighting your, your presentation. I do hope to have you on again for, for a different reason and, and highlighting one of your other many publications. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and edited by Kaylin Rauerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.